Lord, we just thank you for this day. We thank for this opportunity to come together and to look at your word and to see what you'd have us learn from that. We just ask you to guide and lead all that we do, and we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. Revelation chapter 1, starting at verse 11. Saying, I am Alpha and Omega, the first and the last, and what you see, write in a book and send it unto the seven churches which are in Asia, unto Ephesus, and unto Smyrna, unto Pergamos, unto Thyatira, and unto Sardis, and unto Philadelphia, and unto Laodicea. And I turned to see the voice which spoke unto me, and being turned, I saw seven golden candlesticks, and in the midst of the seven candlesticks, one likened to the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the foot, and girded around the paps with a golden girdle. His head and his hairs were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were as flame of fire, and his feet likened to a fine brass, as if they had burned in a furnace, and his voice as the sound of many waters. And he had in his right hand seven stars, and out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was as the sun shining in, the, in its strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead, and he laid his right hand upon me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last, I am he that liveth and was dead, and behold, I am alive forever, amen, and have the keys of hell and death. Bring, write the things which you have seen, and the things which are, and the things which shall be hereafter, the mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand, the seven golden candlesticks, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven candlesticks which you saw are the seven churches. So we're going to be looking at, see if we can finish this chapter today. All right, so we're going to start with, we started verse 11, which is the second of the omniscient uh, passages in this in this chapter and jesus says i am the alpha and omega the the a to the z we would we would say the beginning of, you know the first little alphabet and the end of the alphabet the first and the last he says what you see write in a book and send it to the seven churches which are in asia and we gave you the map so you can see those churches these are the these are literal churches they were they were churches that that john would have probably overseen as because he was the bishop specifically of Ephesus, but those churches are close enough there that he probably, as the apostle, would have been very familiar with those churches and probably visited those churches uh, and would have been able to, to know about those churches in a, in a very intimate way. And we want to bring out the fact that these are churches that, that, are, that are literal churches because we're going to look at some, as we, as we get to the end of this, we'll talk a little more about the seven letters that are going out. Uh, but they are real churches, and, and some of them have real problems. And one of the things about, as we read, the, you know, there's this idea that if you go back to the New Testament, all the churches were perfect in the New Testament. And if you've ever believed that, get it out of your head right away. Corinth was a terrible church. It had carnality all over the place, had all kinds of problems, all kinds of issues. And you know what's pretty good? It's actually good that some of them did because they, the apostles wrote to these churches to correct their problems so that when we have problems today, we go back and say, okay, this church had this problem and this is what the apostles said. Uh, and so when we look at these seven churches, we're going to see various problems within these churches and we're going to look at those when we get to chapters two and three. And um, so he says, I turned to see the voice which spoke unto me and being turned, I saw seven candlesticks. Okay, and, and this chapter tells us what the candlesticks are. The candlesticks represent the seven churches. And one thing you're going to note in the book of Revelation is seven is a very predominant number. Seven candlesticks, seven stars in his hands, seven plagues, seven seals, seven trumpets. There's sevens all over the book of Revelation. And if you want to get into it, the, the number seven is the number of completion or perfection okay so it basically is saying that we've got seven churches the church is perfect as we've studied when we did the who we are in Christ there's seven plagues a perfect list of of, of plagues okay um, and within each of these sevens you're going to find other information but there's seven overall and then there's other numbers in there so we want to look at this idea that seven is all over this book and you're going to see it over and over and over again and so he turned and he saw 
seven candlesticks, and he said, In the midst of the seven candlesticks, one likened to the Son of Man. The Son of Man is a very specific title in the scriptures referring to God incarnate or Jesus. Uh, huh? Well, this, this isn't one of the lampstands. This is, this is in, in the, the midst, midst of. of. In the midst of, standing amongst the stars, uh, the candlesticks was Jesus. Uh, not the menorah. Not the, not, not the menorah. Oh, no, this oh. is seven separate candlesticks. Because it's each church representing a candle to their, to their particular community. Jesus in the midst of them. I mean, it's a great picture because Jesus standing in the midst of his church churches all around him and he is actually part of all of his church and all of his churches are him so he's in the midst of them and and this is what we're seeing and the son of man is a description daniel used it a lot ezekiel used it a lot the son of man there are places where son of man small s you know uh, small m is referring to humans but in many places and you see you see when it's talking about the divine that it's talking about Jesus, he is the the Son of Man, but he is also God incarnate. So it's referring to to him. Now this picture that we read here is a is first given to us in Daniel. So we'll turn to Daniel seven, and we'll end up going to Daniel and Ezekiel and Isaiah quite a bit during these stories. Daniel seven. Daniel seven. And we're going to start at verse nine. I beheld till the thrones were cast down, and the Ancient of Days did sit, whose garment was white as snow, and the hair of his head was like pure wool. His throne was like the fiery flame, and his wheels or his feet as burning fire. The fire stream issued, and a fiery stream issued, and came forth from above him. Thousands and thousands ministered unto him. And tens and tens of thousands stood before him. The judgment was set, and the books were open. And I beheld then, because the voice of the great words of the horn spake, and I beheld until the beast was slain, and the body destroyed, and given it to the fiery flame. As concerning the rest of the beasts, they had their dominion taken away, yet their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. And I saw in the night vision, and behold, was like unto the Son of Man, come into the clouds of heaven, and came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. And there was given in him dominion and glory and kingdom, and all the people, nations, and languages should serve his, serve him. His dominion was, is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom, that which shall not be destroyed. So you see the same picture of Jesus, and this is this one's over a whole period of time. This is not talking just about the end, but it's talking about the millennial kingdom going into the millennial kingdom. But it's the same picture that he has. And it talks about millions of minister, minister to him and, and 100,000 stand before him, which is probably still small. So, it's, so we just want to let you know, this, it's really great when you see all these things interacting with the Old Testament scriptures because you go in and you say, here it is and there it is. And this picture of Jesus... The, the picture that they have of him, the, this man clothed in a garment down to his foot, gird around up to the paps, up to the chest. He's got a great big girdle type thing around him, some kind of belt that goes all the way from what girdle length is all the way up to the, to the chest, and it's in gold. Uh, and it says that his hair is white like wool and white as snow, and his eyes were a flame of fire. This is, this is not the Jesus that, that John knew in, in walking around. Uh, it's not the Jesus that even we know at, at this point in our, in our interactions with Jesus because Jesus is still interacting with the world as the lamb, the sacrificed lamb. But the picture that John's seeing at this moment is the Jesus who is ready to conquer uh, and, and be the strength of the, the Godhead and and this is not the Jesus that we deal with in this moment. It's, Jesus is still dealing with the world in a very soft and gentle way as he's drawing people to him. And as we get into Revelation, we're going to see the, the transition from, from sacrifice, sacrificial lamb to lion of Judah and, and ruler of the, of the world as he goes into judgment. And we'll see that transition and we'll see this new picture of Jesus that John is seeing at the beginning of his vision.
and you know talks about him his his head and his hairs were white this says his feet likened to fine brass as if they were burned in a furnace which talks about judgment brass always refers to judgment when it's talking in its in its context uh, remember when we studied the the uh, tabernacle the footing of the walls around it were all made out of brass and it's the judgment of God between between earth representing man and God representing the temple and brass was the one that covered all around it the judgment that fell upon that fell upon Christ and we're seeing here judgment his feet are his feet are there for judgment because he's in his he's in his in this vision he's in his ruling image he's not the lamb he's in his ruling and in his ruling image he's going to step when he returns for at the end of the tribulation he steps on the mount of olives and in judgment it splits the whole mountain splits and creates a new valley in in the middle east and judgment he comes in judgment he comes with crushing authority and and then it goes and he and it's uh, he had in his right hand the seven stars, and the seven stars, as you look in, in chapter in verse twenty, it says in, in the English angels, okay, and the word literally in Greek is agelos, which means a lot of, a lot of times it means angel, but it literally means more specifically messengers, okay, and we. Do not most scholars do not believe that he's talking about an angel that oversees the church because the letter is to be delivered to the angel of the church of that of the particular church, and you're not going to take a physical letter and give it to a spiritual spiritual being, so it has to mean something different. And the term messenger is one who is sent or one who is executing a purpose and making a purpose known. And so most people tend to believe that these stars that he's talking about are the pastor teachers of their church, the, the one who oversees the church, the one who's in, responsible for the church. And God says that, that a pastor is to, held accountable for their church. And this is why it's a very delicate thing to want to be a pastor. And to be, want to be a pastor, you're, you're setting yourself up for great judgment because you're you are responsible. You have an authority, and that authority means that there's responsibility. Anytime there's authority, there's responsibility that goes along with that authority. A husband has authority over has authority over his family, and it goes that he has responsibility for his family. So when a husband doesn't treat his wife and his family correctly, he's going to be judged by God to a higher degree. Than, than somebody who didn't have a family to take care of because he affects a whole family. And same thing for a pastor. A pastor is held to a higher degree. He gets authority, but by the same token, he's responsible for how he treats everybody in the church and the messages that they give and anybody that he leads astray with, with ungodly advice will be saying, what do you think you were doing? <laughs> and so these angelly stars held in the right hand of Jesus. And who remembers what right hand means? Authority. Somewhat authority. It's approval. The side of, that's approved. And it brings authority. Uh, your right hand, we still, we use this term today, your right hand man or your right hand person is being changed to these days, is that person that you depend on. You've given them authority. They they, they, they're, if they say that you're going to do something, you, you know that you're, going to, that you're going to be able to do it because they have that kind of authority. They're, they're the most important person. They're the one that you... And we're held in Jesus' right hand. Now, the, the, priest, the, the seven stars were in the preachers? Or pastors. The pastors. Pastor teachers. There are a handful of people that will tell you they're literally angels like the English translates that I don't I don't believe that but when when I disagree with some other thing out there I'm gonna let you know that this is what I believe and this is what others believe uh, because when we're in the book of Revelation it's very hard to get dogmatic about anything because it's all future and you think about when Jesus came the first time the scribes and the Pharisees they they understood the Messiah was gonna come and they was gonna build his kingdom and, and deliver them and make make Israel the the the, the, the 
center of all, all governments, okay? which is true in the future. <laughs> but it wasn't true for his first coming, which was to die as the suffering servant. And they basically ignored all those verses, which is why we need to be careful even in ourselves that we don't get so dogmatic. We say that this is what's going to happen, and it's got to happen this way because then we'll be just like the Jew, the scribes and the Pharisees and miss what's going on around us. So we want to be very, very careful. We want to know what we believe, why we believe it, and stand strong in what, you know, what we do believe and, and have a reason for it. But we also want to be somewhat flexible because we are talking about the future. And even though it's very clear, it's still garbled a little bit. We, I, as I've said when we started this, I believe we are in the end times. I believe as we get through Revelation, especially in the earlier chapters, we're going to see today. Okay. Um, and know that we're there. But as people will have pointed out, we've been saying that we're at the end times for 2,000 years. Yeah, on my Sunday school class last month, when we were teaching Daniel, we all saw it today in Daniel. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Daniel's got a lot of today in it. Uh, mm -hmm. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, they all have a lot of end times prophecy. And, and if we're not at the end times, it's hard to believe how much worse it's got to get yeah. to be in the end times. Because we are at a time now where things are being, where good is being called bad and bad is being called good, and we're seeing it all the time, and it's getting worse with every every passing month or week. We see more and more things being flipped around on its head, and so if we're not at the end times, it scares me at how bad it's got to get to to be at the end times, and we're starting to see just as as judges said, and just as the days before Noah, that people are doing what's good in their own eyes. And we're seeing a lot of that. And we see that as we witness to people and we say, well, you really should be coming to God, studying the Bible, coming to church once in a while. Well, I don't need to. You know, I can do it all on my own. And we're seeing that whole separate separateness. We're seeing there's, uh, and in some ways the church deserves what it's got because there's been so many, so many churches that teach rules, rules, rules. Do the, you know, do this, do that, you know. And, and they've driven people away by putting rules on there that the, the Jesus didn't put on them. Jesus said, it's all me. Yeah. And that scares a lot of pastors to give their people freedom to just stand before Jesus. You know, I, I'm glad I don't have to sit there and try to give people rules and figure out whether they're following the rules or anything. Just You stand before God, you know, before Jesus. I'm just going to tell you this is what he says. And then it's up to you and what you want to do. I don't have to stand there and, and sift through and say, oh, this person's doing good, this person's not doing good. You know, we do that automatically in our humanity anyway, but it's not my job as a pastor. I'm just going to say, teach, watch people grow, see them grow. And I think you get a better result anyway because people desire God and how easy his message is. You know, Jesus said his yoke is easy. He doesn't put a big burden on us. And this is what people in this church are finding out. As you follow God and you're following it with Jesus... It's not this bunch of rules and hard, hard life. It is just let him do the yeah, work, and it's that much easier. A yoke is the the was a in that day was wood that hooked two animals yeah, together, yeah, and the way it was designed was that the 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 more experienced animal had the heavier part of the yoke on them and did the work, and the one that was in training or the younger animal would have a light light burden on it. So, so Jesus yoke, is saying, I'm leading, I'm leading, and I'm taking the weight. So you just yoke, follow. So the yoke being when you're getting that stronger, you have a heavier yoke on because you have a lot. In this case, Jesus will always bear the yoke, the burden oh, so on the yoke. He will, okay. Yeah, we're yoked to Jesus, and he says, just follow me, and I'm carrying okay, the weight. Okay, so he's ahead. Okay, okay. Yeah. Follow me, I'm carrying the heavy weight. Yeah, you know, I always, I said, I know it for oxen, but then it Yeah. Okay. He's carrying the heavy weight, and he's just saying, follow me as we go along. Now, if you want to keep fighting him and pull the weight, you know, try to pull the yoke and, and pull against him, then you get the weight. And this is what a lot of people try to do to people. They put weight on him saying, ah, don't follow Jesus. Here's your, here's your rules. Don't. And it's critical that we realize it's all a gift. It's all him. And it's so much easier to live that way. It is so much easier to live that way. And it's, in this picture of Jesus, is in his right hand, he's carrying the seven stars. And I believe this isn't just, just the seven 
just these right. seven in here. It's really all, all pastors who are true pastors. Now, and this is where you've got to be careful, and this is why I say, you know, when you go to a church, when you're looking for a church, you need to be careful who you're getting for a pastor. And, and I've shared, if you're in a pa place where a pastor says, believe this because I say it, or this is absolutely true and I have the inside information, and then you need to be very careful of that person and probably get as far from them as possible because that's not who our te true teacher is. All, pa all true pastors understand that they are the under-shepherd to Jesus and the people are answerable ultimately to Jesus. And knowing that we can make mistakes and often do, we can be bad examples, we can, we can get snotty sometimes and say things that are not, not kind just because we are human. And we will, again, we will be held accountable for doing so in a, in a higher standard. But we still can make mistakes and people need to be good Bereans, get into the scriptures, check the scriptures for themselves, know what they believe and why they believe it. And a good pastor can be the one that can help you, guide you into understanding. But they're not the master. They're not the one that's, when they say it, it's got to be believed. If they, if they say jump, you say how high. No, that's not what a pastor does. A pastor leads gently because they are a shepherd. They're not, they're not to abuse, abuse the sheep. And I've seen pastors that just abuse their people, piling rules on them, piling, you know, trying to make them do things. And, and it's... A lot of it is not the trust of the Holy Spirit being shown. And I trust the Holy Spirit to work in people's lives. When I say we've got grace to do what we want, that doesn't mean I really expect anybody to go out and go out there and sin as much as they can because if they've got God in their life, then they can't go out and sin as much as they want because God's going to convict them of that sin. So by giving them grace and giving them freedom, it's not a bad thing because the Holy Spirit will do his work and he does it very well as long as we stay out of the way. And God has always been one that if people want to get in the way, he'll just step back and say, okay, you do it. If you want to defend yourself from attacks, he'll say, okay, I'll just stand back and let you defend yourself, and we will make a mess out of defending ourselves most, most of the time, perhaps not all the time. And if we just step back and hide in God, he defends us and, and does a very good job defending us. And so here we are with God. He's holding the, right, holding the, the seven stars and it says, out of his mouth was a sharp two-edged sword, which is the word of God. That's how the word of God is described, a sharp two-edged sword. And it's so sharp, it divides the bone from the marrow and the soul from the spirit. And those things are very, very tight groups. I don't know if you've ever tried to separate bone from marrow without damaging one or the other. You can get marrow out, but you've got to destroy the bone to do it. Uh, and God says his word is so sharp it can, it, can divide those, it can divide the spirit and the soul, which we think of the spirit and soul being pretty much joined together. And the spirit is God's spiritual part that he gives us, and the soul is, is attached to the flesh. And the soul and the spirit war with each other. And that's why we need the word of God to separate those two and say, we're going to put a separation between this. You're going to know when you're following the spirit. You're going to know when you're following the flesh. And the, 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 the spirit is God's part. The soul is the innermost part of our, our emotions, and it's emotional. The spirit, the, the soul is emotional. And one thing you know, if you've ever gotten into your emotions, are your emotions usually lie to you. <laughs> the you spirit know. is a lot more stronger than your, your soul. Well, because it's, it's God. It's God. Yeah. But again, it depends on who you're feeding. It depends on which one you're feeding. If you don't get in God's word, you don't come to church, and your, your soul is going to be very strong. If, if you're not reading his word and, and understand, starting to learn from God, and you're feeding the, the soul and feeding the soul, the soul will be what's dominant. If you're in God's word, you're spending time in it with his people, you're in, the, you're in church listening, you're listening to preaching and teaching, you're going to feed no. the spirit and the soul will dwindle. Well, what I mean by the spirit, because when you're doing your spirit, you're, like you say, feeding it more, but then when you do something bad, your soul knows it. That's why I say the spirit is better than the soul, because then when you're feeding your spirit, you know when you're right. doing bad. So that's what I mean. Yeah. And again, I just make that clear. Yeah, yeah. You know, just make it clear. I so what, yeah. What, what we, the, the, part of our, the part of us that we feed the most will be what's dominant in our yeah. mind. Uh, the soul will always be there because we are fleshly beings. As long yeah. as we live, the soul will, will be there, weakened or, and, yeah. and, and beat up, but it'll still be there. And this is why, you know, even after all the times I've been studying all, you know, 
new things start popping up in my mind that bother me, and I say, I can't do this anymore. I can't do yeah. that anymore. That's why your soul is getting light. Like, my soul is getting so much stronger. And so my flesh sometimes, or spirit, may want to say, no, I know my spirit wants me to do this mm -hmm. and not the other way, you know. Yep. And this is, and then it says, his countenance was as the sun shining in its strength. That's pretty bright. <laughs> You know, we, we, we are very fortunate to live in the desert away from uh, the majority of all the smog, so we get to see the sun and its strength a lot around here. And this is, when we get ourselves exposed to Jesus and God, more and more of his light shines into our life. And we've used this discussion many times of, if you're in a, in a room and you just have a candle in your dark room, everything looks pretty clean, because a candle doesn't put out a lot of light you know put a 40 watt bulb on your, in your ceiling and turn it on and all of a sudden you start seeing it you know for that it's not maybe as clean as you thought it was you know put a 200 watt bulb in there <laughs> and and all of a sudden you start seeing uh wow you know the the air has dust in it you know it's it's the uh and then you know you get up to the million i mean if you've ever played with those million candle you know spotlights you know that that put light everywhere you know but this is what God does in our life. He doesn't put his million power candle into our, into our life right from the beginning because number one, it would shock us. If we really saw how evil we were from the moment we were saved, we probably wouldn't survive the initial gaze into our life. We'd probably be terrified. But as, God, as we walk with God, he puts a little more light, a little more light. And as we get rid of, as we clean up what he has shown us, he puts a little more light into our life, a little more truth into our life. And eventually, he turns on a great big spotlight and says, oh, here you go. You. But there's always something more. There's always something more. Every time we get rid of something in our life, he'll point out something else that we need to, to develop and, and, and look at. And this is... This is very much true, and it, it's to keep us humble in one sense so that we know. I have met people who have walked in, you know, quote-unquote, walked with Christ and in the Word, and they get self-righteous and, and believe that they are perfect somehow. And I've seen so many of these people in the churches over years, and I'm going, how can you even think that? Well, I've been walking for God for, you know, this many years. I'm going, well, I've been walking with Him for 40 years, and I, I keep seeing more and more dirt more and more awfulness more, in my in my just life. Just learning, just the more I'm learning, I see how much I'm so way way behind that I never. I mean, at least I'm getting rid of some of the. Yep. Dirt, but I'll never, ever, ever, you know, go that way. Paul, at the end of his life, said, "I'm the chiefest of sinners." Okay. Why did he say that? Because he was seeing himself what God was really showing him. He was getting so close to God that he was really seeing how bad the flesh is. And the more we see how bad the flesh is, the more we want to be should be wanting to go out and minister to others because I I'm not better than everybody else. I, you know, and unfortunately Christianity has gotten this idea of when they try to lead people to Christ, get your life together and then we'll get you to we'll get you to come to Christ and that's not what Christ's message is. You know, uh, and I've had this happen. I was doing a doing a question and answer period time when and the very first question somebody asked is how do I convince my friend or relative or whatever it was that homosexuality is a sin I'm going are they saved no then who cares okay they're doing plenty of sins <laughs> that they know are sins okay is homosexuality a sin absolutely it's a sin but if I'm dealing with a lost person who doesn't think it's a sin yeah. Why should I care about the laws? Now, if I'm dealing with a Christian, I'm going to teach them the, what the Word of God says, and it's between them and God to determine that it's a, a sin. But with the lost person, they know that lying's a sin. They know that stealing's a sin. There's plenty of sins that we can get into with them to teach them that they're a sinner. But they won't read the Bible because they know what they're doing is sin. But, but again, it doesn't... When, a, when you're dealing with a lost person, it really doesn't matter that they're doing some things that they don't think are a sin or not. Because it is totally irrelevant because the key for us is finding what they do know is a sin. Everybody knows that lying is a sin. I don't think there's anybody out there in the world that believes that lying is not a sin. Now, they may put shades of gray in their light line, you know, well, you know, being kind to somebody and lying isn't really isn't really sin. So that's fine. I'm not gonna I'm not gonna argue their shades of gray. I'm gonna but they know that an outright, flat out lie is a lie. Is a lie and it's wrong. 
And so we, when we're dealing with people, we go with where they're at. We're not, Jesus never went to the people and said, okay, get your life straight and then I'll come and talk to you and, and, and deliver you. He went to them where they were at, showed them their sin, and then said, you need to come to me. And that's what we need to do with people. And the church as a whole doesn't do that very well. Uh, the, the, there's always this mentality of, you know, well, when they get their life together, I'll go talk to them. No. <laughs> Matter of fact, when they get their life, if, if they get their life together, which they never will, but if they think they have their life together, they're very hard to reach because they're self-righteous and don't need help anymore. Good people are always hard to give the gospel to because they feel they don't need it. And this is why I love to deal with people who know that they're a sinner because they're much easier to read, reach because they know they need something that they don't have. So good can mean two different ways too. Well, a lot of people think they're good and they're yeah. not. Yeah. But by the world standard, they're good. And how do they do that? Because they put their life on the balance and they say, well, I do more good than bad. Uh, so, so I'm a good person. I don't need it. Jesus' biggest group of people he had problems with was with the scribes and Pharisees who thought they were good people. And they attacked him all the time. And he, he, got, he went right back on them that, you know, hey, you've sinned. <laughs> and they didn't want to accept that they had sinned. So reaching good people is, a, is really hard to do. It's much easier to reach people who are sinners. And this is why a lot of times you'll see People who think they're good but they're not following God run into all kinds of problems to drag them down and make them realize they have a need. Because God's got to say, your goodness isn't what you're going to do. And, you're, and then you'll hear all these, why do good, the bad things happen to good people? Well, you weren't really that good to begin with, so it's... They're good in a different way, like some people say, if I do good in God's eyes, then I'm good. No. Right. Yeah, and my and my answer to why does why does good thing uh, why do bad things happen to good people is to turn the statement around. Why do good things happen to bad people? We're all bad people in God's sight. So why does anything good happen to any of us is the real question. Really, Chris. So he, he died for our sins. Yeah. So I mean, all of this is. I mean, it comes to what is your biblical perspective or a world world's perspective. And it's so easy to get into a world's perspective, you know, because we're bombarded by it all the time, where, where we start thinking this is, this is the way everybody else thinks. You know, we get into the idea of divorce. God says the only grounds for divorce is for adultery. And we're, we're bombarded in it. And we get all these great examples of why somebody probably should divorce their, 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 their spouse. They're getting abused and beat and all these things which God doesn't say is valid. Now, if somebody's getting that kind of stuff, I say get out of the house. Get some, get some good counseling from somebody who can get you godly counseling. But divorce is not what God says to do. Okay? Okay. Uh, in our scripture reading, you were reading uh, from the church, you were reading recently the, the God's word about suing each other. And it says Christians shouldn't be suing one another. Now, we probably shouldn't be suing each other, you know, for all the stupid things that we sue for anyway. But how many times you, you've, and I've even said it myself, well, that's, that's really bad. You probably should sue them over it. Yeah. That's not a biblical point of view necessarily. Okay. Now, if somebody purposely tries to hurt you, then yes, you need to seek that's some legal... Yeah legal help or, or mediation of some sort, but most of the stuff people sue over are not done on purpose, was not done trying to hurt people. Now there are people out there trying to hurt others and all that and probably deserve to be sued. I think 99.9% no, it's the suing is stupid, maybe 1%. Yeah, I don't know if it's quite that high, but I mean, it, but it is. But, I, but the key is, are we following a biblical worldview or are we following a the worldview of Satan and, 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 the, and the world. And this is where we have to shine out and say, this is what. Now, the one thing you're not going to find out, the more you walk with God, the more your view is going to be changed too. Is The more you get into his word, the more you get taught, the more you start going, oh, uh, I didn't realize that was something I'm not supposed to do. God, uh, forgive me and, and, no, we, and we change our mind. That, yeah. You know. And because as we grow and get more knowledge and more light in our life, we're going to see things we're not supposed to do. And, you know, little things like attacking people and saying bad things about people. We all know that's wrong, but yet we find ourselves doing it because it's so easy to do in the flesh. And God says, stop. And so we want to look at this and, and go for that. And John's reaction to this when he saw him? Calls him a liar. Yeah. Calls him a liar. Yeah. 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 Yeah.
fell down at his, on his face. Yeah. And this is the amazing thing. Every time Jesus is seen in the scriptures, there's, uh, there's a lot of Christophanies and Christophanies, appearance of Jesus before he was born. This is not a Christophany because Jesus has already been in, in existence. But every time somebody sees Jesus before they fall on their face. And that's why we sing this song, I Can Only Imagine. It's a wonderful yeah. song, and it's a great song, good tune. But the answer to that is, there's no imagining. When we see Jesus, especially those first time we see him, we're going to be on our face. There's not, there's not, a, will I, there's not going to be a question, will I dance, will I sing, will I, I'm going to fall, because that is what happens every time in the Bible, people see Jesus. And I love the song. It's a wonderful so song and all that. Fall. That's way after we fall. Yeah, okay, okay. Yeah, we can imagine what it would be like yeah, in, in a million years yeah, from, yeah, yeah. from there. Then maybe maybe we won't fall on our face every yeah. time we see him. That, that may be true. So, But his response was to fall on his face. Mine says, I fell on his feet as dead. As dead. You know, he just collapsed. He might have even just was overwhelmed and yeah, literally and, collapsed. And I fell. He and might have passed when out. I saw him, I fell on my uh, feet as dead. But we see this. Daniel did the same thing. Uh, Abraham, when he saw when he saw Jesus, fell down and worshipped. You know, and this is the power of God when we're in His presence. And hopefully, you've had felt this at some point in your time when you've worshipped. You've been in, in worship with Him when when His presence hits you. It can be overwhelming. And I have been almost knocked down by the presence of God because it was just so overwhelming. When, when God steps in with his righteousness, his holiness, and comes in contact with our sinfulness and lack of holiness, it is overwhelming just to be in that presence. You know what is really odd? Always you, I think one time, it was a while, long time ago, I did, and I never really, you know, go down on my knees and on the floor, but I did that mm -hmm. one time, and I couldn't believe it. I was like in tears, but that was the only time it really, really happened to me other than, you know, but it was, it was neat. It was so... It's powerful. So it is powerful. wonderful, but it is also overwhelming when his presence comes oh, upon yeah, you and his deity... I wanted to stay on the floor. I really did. You, know, you see, you saw Jesus' deity in the Garden of Gethsemane, uh, the Garden of Gethsemane when they came to arrest him, and they said, "Who are you seeking?" And they said, "Jesus of Nazareth." And he turned and said, "I am He." And they fell. I think they saw, for just that flash of a moment, they saw the deity of Christ and the holiness of Him overwhelmed them. Uh, and we see it all through the Scriptures. When God comes, it's overwhelming. And this is some place, this is a place where sometimes we as Christians get kind of jaded because we're given that permission to come into his, his righteousness. And we, we sometimes forget the holiness of God and the specialness of God. You know, we, we kind of get this idea of he's my buddy, he's my friend. And yes, there's a truth to that, but he is also, he's that friend that you, that you know and you will talk to, but he's that friend that you just don't run up to and... and and grab hold of and you know or 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 rest you know wrestle to the ground or whatever you know whatever you would do to a to a close friend you know he's that friend that's kind of he's too pure he's pure he's holy yeah. he's he's yes i know him i'm but he's we need that holiness that awe of him that fear of him that we that we wanted and not that i'm afraid to go to him but that here's somebody that's so much above me that i it, it would be for us, if we were to go and meet the president of the of the United States, you know, uh, which maybe that won't be so good no, with this particular no, president, no, but no, no, no. Uh, you know, or whoever your idol, pick, whoever you really think is a really wonderful person, you know, you know, uh, I don't like to use the word idol, but you kind of yeah. know what I yeah, mean yeah, by yeah, that, yeah, you know, yeah, that yeah. person you kind of really look up to, and if you had that opportunity to meet that person, what would you say to that person? You would probably be tongue-tied and not being able to speak to him. It's like, uh, you know, it's. Yeah. You know, you just don't know what to say because that person has been so special to you and to meet them face to face would be a kind of a mind-blowing experience. And we need to have that re reaction when we come into the presence of God. Yes, we, yes, we come to him. Yes, he says we're, we're pure and that we can come to him. But we need to be able to come to him in that, here, I'm coming into the presence of somebody special. 
this isn't just my buddy down the street that I hang out with and I go bowling with. You know, go yeah. bowling with and party with or you know, we we go driving and just joke around. This is this is a person who's still above well, us, I even though he's a friend. That. I'm just so privileged that I'm in his family. Mm -hmm. And that's how I feel. I just, you know, I'm so thankful. And there's not enough, like you say, enough sand on the seashore to thank him. <laughs> yeah. You know. But this is a place where we as Christians oftentimes lack. And the Jews understood it because, number one, they had to go to this fancy, elaborate tabernacle and temple, and they had to shed blood. And there was this whole ritual and that is probably the only good thing about ritual is it brings that awe if you go into a catholic church with all the ritual and stuff that goes along with it there's an awe that's brought about and there's a there's a you know especially when you go into the old cathedrals you know there's this the the silence and the echo and everything that's there that says wow this is special yeah there's a great beauty uh and we as Christians oftentimes have gotten away from the awe of God and the reverence of God. And we almost treat him too much like a, you know, my good buddy, let me put my arm around you. Let's just, you know, that's not the way Jesus is. He's, a, he's our friend. He's our, you know, he's a companion, but he's not one that should be that type of friend. I, mean, I hope that's making some sense. It's, yeah. it's not, um, so John's falling before him and then, Jesus reaches down and says, fear not. These scriptures, if you ever want a great study, go through and look up all the verses on fear not. There's only about 300, almost 400 of them, but fear not. That is what God speaks so often, fear not. Even though we're to give him awe, we're to reverence him, we are to fear him in a, in a, in a way, but he's not wanting this crushing fear that keeps us from his presence. And that fear that I'm talking about isn't to keep us from his presence, it's just to keep us from being too um, loose with him, too, too jovial with him, casual. Uh, and, and Jesus reached out and says, fear not, I am the first and the last. And I love this term, you know, he's going, I am the I, first, I, I am the, first the beginning the of time to the end of time, and even beyond that. <laughs> you know, he's even beyond time, he uses this for our sake, but... Remember that Jesus is eternal. He had no beginning, has no end. Even though he came to this earth and had a beginning in the flesh and an end in the flesh, he had no beginning and no end. We as humans have a beginning, but no end. Once we are born, we, have, we are eternal beings' future. Okay, Whether we accept him or reject him, we are eternal beings' into the future but we have a beginning so eternal is really not the right word but you know, we don't we don't just end there's a number of, of cults and religions that say well god god loves everybody so there's no way he'd punish them forever so you know you die without him you get annihilated you know nice easy out you know reject god and you just will cease to exist but it's not what god says we are eternal beings i should close that door And uh, he says, I am he that lived and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. Gives a testimony of his resurrection. <laughs> and this is one of the great things about Christianity. Our Savior rose from the dead. Okay. Now, there are certain other groups that kind of try to make it sound like their, their leader rose from the dead, but you go to their graves and they are still somebody in it. And during Easter, we gave, you know, listed out all the proofs and everything as to how we know Jesus rose from the dead. We're not, we don't have a question of it. He rose from the dead. And it says, write these things which you have seen and the things which are and the things that shall be hereafter. And that's the whole premise of this book. What is, what he has seen, and what will, what will happen. So it's right there and he starts out in the next couple chapters he'll be what is the seven churches and then he gets into what will be and as we said I can't imagine being John and seeing this century or a little further than this century you know a first century person seeing all the stuff that goes on in this day and age had to be a very frightening experience 
Now he lives in he lives in a place where speed is about 20 miles an hour, maybe 30 if you're on a really fast horse for a short distance. And he comes around here and he's seeing things like cars, you know, you know, planes going two and three hundred miles or a thousand, you know, eight hundred, whatever it is that they go, you know. And we are in a very fast-paced world. And for those of us who are old enough to remember, you know, I can remember when a long-distance phone call was a big deal. Okay, it was expensive. You didn't make them very often. We made we made a we made a long-distance phone call in my family growing up about once a month because we lived on the East Coast and all the family lived on the west coast so about once a month we'd make a uh, a phone call and, and the kids would get to speak maybe yeah. <laughs> a minute yeah yeah when the rates were low and remember the party line six. Oh, yeah. so and now we don't even think twice about making long distance phone calls now we don't even think twice i remember the first time i used uh email you know and i got the got my message to Pol poland and got it back Within within a minute or two, and it's like, wow, this is, <laughs> you know, this is great, this is wonderful, and the the size of our Earth has dwindled in so much that we don't even think about what it how well, small it phone. is. The phone used to only be a phone, nothing else. Right now it's everything. Now it's a camera and a small computer, and that's why my phone stays yeah. in a box. Yeah. And we and how small the world has become, you know, where even when you got news, even as, as recently as about 1980, uh, your news was delayed by yeah. you know 24 hours if you and wanted to see pictures. Right now, like if you wanted to see pictures, it was delayed by about 24 hours. You know, and if you wanted the words, they got there pretty quick because they would phone in, phone in, or, or you know, telegraph in. But if you wanted to see pictures, you were looking at a 24-hour wait. Now they're showing you what they're reporting as they're reporting it uh, live, you know, without without being filtered. And our world is so small. Travel used to take, you know, when you when you traveled from Europe to America in, in the early parts of that, it would it would be weeks, you know, almost a month to travel from one to the other. Now we do it in hours. And if you really want to go the, the supersonic, you can get there in an hour, you know, to the other side of the country, and we don't even think twice about it. And everything is becoming so small and this world is be being returned. In the Tower of Babel, God confused the languages so that man would seek him and would quit trying to do things together. We have overcome that and we're starting to see the world become one world and we're headed back to the Tower of Babel. And we've overcome the block that God put in. And that's one of the reasons that we know we're at the end times, because the Tower of Babel is going to be reestablished. Maybe not a literal tower, but that whole mental mentality of the Babylonian religion and all of that will be, be full circle. And there's nothing new under the sun. And God's going to take the church out and send judgment. So we're almost full circle from the Tower of Babel back to the Tower of Babel. And we're getting right there. And I love it that one of the one of the just translation programs on the computer is called Babel. <laughs> Translates from one language to the other to, to get you back to, oh. you know, started with Babel and is going to end with Babel translating. And we have no problem communicating with each other anymore. And so this is this is what God is saying as He comes into this. And we're going to get ready to look at the the seven churches. So we're going to give an introduction to the seven churches real quick. First we said there are seven literal churches, which we gave you the map so you can look at the map and see that. Now, there's two major points that they look at when they look at the seven churches. One is that the churches represent epochs or ages. Okay? Uh, you know, when the church was basically pure and as it, as it worked its way down to the, to the end where it's, where it's cold. And in one sense, there's a general truth about that. It does show how the church, in a general sense, has started pretty pure and strong and worked its way to impurity. It's not, I don't like that idea because it kind of says, well, you know, all churches are that way. And that's never been true in any of these times. Okay? And you just have to look at the very first. The, the very first churches, you know, the, most of them were good, strong churches, but there were many that were weak and floundering and had their problems and their issues. And even today, when, when we would say by this definition that we are in the, the age of Laodicea, yes, a lot of churches 
are lukewarm and cold and dead. But there are a lot of churches that are still strong and vibrant and, and growing. So I am of the school of thought that says these churches show the various scope and, and breadth of the churches that are out there. The strong, vibrant churches and the ones that are into the flesh, the ones that are into works, the ones that are into to Laodicea. And all churches are all that way and switch back and forth between these depending on how well they're listening to God. Okay, so that is my view of these churches. They're real churches and, and we see them this way and that they represent the scope of where the church can be and should challenge people and can also even take this one step down. Where are we as an individual Christian can be shown by the scope of these churches. There's times when we're white hot and ready to go and then there's times when, when we're lukewarm and, and been beat down by the flesh. So I would say that there even we could look at our own lives in here and say, yes, this is our own life and say, I need to get out of this one and get back into the church basically of Ephesus, which, is a, which had its own problems too because they left their first love. So each one of them has a problem. Each one of them has an issue. And so we can look at them and say, how can I, where do I fit in this? How, am, I, am I a strong, strong Christian walking with God, or do I have lots of problems in my life? Okay, and that's all I'm going to say about it. Is those are the two general views. Uh, they use them kind of figuratively as, as epoch or ages, or they, but I, I do believe that they are just, these are the, the scope and breadth of churches and really strong to really weak. All right, any comments or questions? I got done about five minutes early, but I'm not going to start chapter two at this point. <laughs> All right, well, let's close prayer. It's prayer, and then I guess I'll go find out who that is so desperately trying to reach us. Lord, we just thank you for this day. We thank you for this, just looking at your word, and we ask that you help us to see what you'd have us to see and guide where you'd want us to, to go into. Help us to see ourselves as you see us in, in perfection, but also, Lord, help us to see the areas that we need to work on to be sanctified. And we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Amen.